Psalm 80, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Here's a gospel. All right, look at, look at the psalm reading at Psalm 80. I'm going to do what I've done uh, a couple times during uh, Advent and Lent, which is um, talk about the, the psalm from the past Sunday. So Psalm 80 was the psalm from this past Sunday, and I'd like to look at it with you. And just super basic, nothing fancy here. It's really more of a, uh, even more of a, a Bible study than it is like a real hardcore sermon. But Psalm 80 is really good, and it's a great Advent psalm because there's this sense of waiting in there. There's this sense of, um, there, you know, there's something wrong, and God, we need you. God, come and restore us. And uh, so let's look at, now there's one unfortunate thing here, which is, when I prepared this, uh, I prepared it uh, with, with verse references in mind, and there are no verse references in the bulletin. So I'm going to try to avoid saying too much. I, I'm not really sure what to do. Uh, if it helps to look at it in your Bibles, uh, that would be good, like on your phone or in the Pew Bible. But uh, that might be a little awkward. Next time around, I'll have, um, make sure that the verse references are in here so it's easy to follow along. Psalm 80 is basically three sections. There's verses one through six. Uh, six ends with our enemies laugh among themselves. And set, the next section starts with restore us, O God of hosts. So one through six is one part. Uh, seven through 13 is the next part. Seven begins with restore us, O God of hosts. And 13 ends with the boar from the forest ravages and all that move in the field feed on it. And then 14 through the end is the next part. The first part, just take a few minutes on this, it's this uh, request that God would return to his people and restore us. God, how long will you be angry with us? Uh, we know that you're glorious, you're enthroned upon the cherubim. We want you to restore us. Uh, verse uh, three, which is the third 
third, third one that we read tonight there, in, if, if, you look, if you look at them as like almost bullet points, I think it's broken up by verses. Restore us, O God, let your face shine um, that we may be saved. That comes, that, that happens, that's spoken three times in the psalm, three times. Restore us, O God, verse three. Verse seven, if you look down a few verses later, restore us, O God of hosts. And then the very last verse in the psalm, same thing, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. We'll come back to it in just a few minutes, exactly what that, what that has to do. But this psalm is the psalm of prayer that God would turn things around, that God would make things better. Things aren't right. God, would you please make them better? In the centerpiece of this psalm, which is verses seven through, um, seven through 13, there's this story about a vine. Now, uh, we're not really sure where this started in the Old Testament. Where's the first place this showed up? But this very well could be the first place this shows up where one of the biblical writers talks about Israel like they're a vine. And I'll quote a few more to you tonight. But here he says in verse 8, this is the one that starts, you brought a vine out of Egypt. So that's talking about the Exodus, right? God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. So you got rid of all the rocks and all the rubble and you got the ground ready for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mount, so it just grew massively. The mountains uh, were covered with its shade. So it's a massive vine, it's covering even the mountains. And the mighty cedars with its branches. So this is like no vineyard you'd ever seen before. It's a vineyard that grows and expands. So you can tell it's a metaphor here. It's Israel growing and expanding and covering uh, all the promised land. Uh, it sent out its branches, branches to the sea, that's the Mediterranean, and it shoots to the river, that's the Euphrates, up north. So it covers this whole big swath of area. Why then, verse 12, this is the key question in the psalm, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Well, uh, the vineyard has been destroyed. For, for, For some reason, God has broken down the walls. It's interesting that he would choose a vineyard. Those of you who, um, and some of you have like incredibly like wonderful gardens, like you're super serious about it. Uh, some of you have the kind of gardens that people like, that they're on the garden tours that people go and visit. And whether you have a garden like that or you have a smaller garden, if you've had it for, for longer than uh, a little while, you know that a garden isn't just a thing. It's not just a piece of property that there's stuff growing out of. That gardens are actually stories, And when you see two gardeners get together and talk about their gardens, they end up talking about their gardens in terms of story. The work that they've done, the way it's grown. They can talk about the way their garden looked 20 years ago and how it's developed and changed. And those of you who are like, you know, work in your yard or work in your gardens, you'll know that the weeds that pop up are different like every year. It's like a different type of weed shows up and takes over and you fight it. And then the next year it might be, a, you know, still be weeds, but it might be a different kind of weed. So you're fighting that and you're deciding what are you going to plant and how does it turn out? And God is telling the same story in terms of Israel about, he's like, he's like a master gardener telling this story about how they created this wonderful garden and swept away all the nations so that this garden could be planted. And it grew and it was powerful. And then though, there's at some point where it, goes south, and God decides, I'm done with it. And 
Like if it was me in my garden, Angela is more diligent than I am. We don't have a massive garden, but she's got a nice herb garden. Some of you have like massive gardens. Think about like uh, th- think about a massive garden from somebody you know. Think about like Debbie's garden. What what if somebody like Debbie just decided, I'm done, and you went to her house and like the backyard was just like grown over. Y- your question would be like, what happened? Like, what went wrong? What would cause somebody to decide to just let their garden go like this? And that's the question that the psalmist has. God, this is a big, powerful, beautiful garden. What went south? What went wrong here? Well, it doesn't say it explicitly in verse 18, but it's implicit. Verse 18 is the second verse from the last, it's the second verse from the end. Then we shall not turn back from you. God, if you come and fix us, then we won't turn back from you. That's implied there, that what went south in the garden is that the garden turned against God. The garden turned against the gardener. The garden decided it wasn't going to do what the garden was supposed to do. You know, this garden specifically is a vineyard. It wasn't going to bear good fruit. That's the point of the vineyard. It's not explicit here in the psalm, but it is in Isaiah 5. Isaiah uses the same vineyard, Israel as a vineyard imagery. And Isaiah says, I'll read a little bit of this to you. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. I'm going to sing a song to God about God's vineyard. God loves this vineyard. My beloved God had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. So basically the story we read in Psalm 80, right? He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Israel's asking God, why did you let the vineyard get broken down? What happened? What went wrong? Why did you let the boar of the field ravage it? And God is asking his people in Isaiah 5, why did you bear wild grapes? Why did I plant you and sow you and fertilize you and raise you up to bear good fruit, and yet you didn't bear good fruit? Now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard, Isaiah 5, verse 5 says. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Now he's very specific in this next line about what went wrong. What was the bad fruit? And he looked for justice, the good fruit. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God abandons his vineyard because his vineyard abandons him. His vineyard refuses to bear good fruit, and so God abandons them. Then God's people are left in the position where they have to cry out, What's, what, what, God, can you please come and fix your vineyard again? What went wrong? Verse 14, this is the last section, 14 through the end. Uh, this is the, it starts, turn again, O God of hosts. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. So God, come back and fix the, This vineyard is hopeless without you. God, we need you to come and do something miraculous. We need you, because you own the vineyard, and the vineyard belongs to you. We need you to come and fix it. Well, in verses 14 through 19, God does this through two ways. 
First of all, the repentance of his people. Go back to verse 18, second from the bottom. Then we shall not turn back from you. So repentance, the word for repentance in Hebrew and in Greek, it means the exact same thing. It just means to turn. And it's a word that can actually mean like you're walking down the road, and if you turned around, it's the exact same verb that, that Hebrew and Greek would use for repent. To turn around, to be facing one direction, to have one course of action, and to abandon that course of action, to go back into another course of action, specifically in the Bible, to turn away from in my case, to turn away from living life Aaron Miller's way, Aaron Miller's path, and to turn back towards God and his path. That's what repentance is. So in verse 18, you shall not turn back from me. But how do we do this? How, how is it that, how, so we won't turn back from you. How do you make that sort of a decision? How do you say, I'm not gonna, I, I'm, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop being, I'm gonna stop doing life Aaron Miller's way and I'm gonna start doing life God's way. How do you do that? Two steps to repentance. Because those of you who've tried to repent know. Maybe you've tried to repent of you know, having too many calories in the day. Maybe you've tried to repent of a, of a serious sin. And you know that just deciding, I'm not gonna do this anymore. Even saying to God, God, help me not do this anymore. And God, please, I'm gonna try to do my best to obey you. And I, you know that it's so easy to fall. That it's hard, to, like, it's hard to stay committed. And anybody who says, well, it's, I know it's hard, but you can do it, is lying to themselves. It's just impossible to repent on your own. So there's two steps to repentance. One is this, repent, to, to know that repentance is a gift of God. Now, I pointed out to us earlier here, in verse 3, it says restore. It says that same, that, that refrain three times in here. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Says it three times. Now, I don't know if any of you are looking at a different version than the ESV. And I don't like to say this because it sounds like I'm saying that the ESV is wrong here. I'm not a super huge fan of um, the translation here, restore us. Because it doesn't, say, it doesn't say restore us in Hebrew. It actually is just the verb for repentance. But it's the Hebrew verb tense that means cause to repent, cause to repent. So literally what it says in Hebrew is, cause us to repent, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Cause us to repent. So make us repent. It's literally what it says in Hebrew three times. The psalmist knows that he can't repent. So what does he do? He goes to God and he says, God, give me repentance. Give me repentance. And we know from the New Testament that this is what repentance is. Repentance is not your part in salvation. It's not like, well, Jesus died on the cross. That's his part. Now, your part is to repent and come back to him. Repentance itself is a gift of God. Paul says at the end of 1 Timothy 5, to, to, be, to be gentle with unbelievers, people who are fighting against the faith, praying for them, that God would grant them repentance. He talks about repentance as a gift from God. So what if you don't feel like repenting? What if you know you should repent? Don't, don't, don't raise your hand, but if you're like me, you've been here, where you know you need to repent, but you don't want to repent because repentance would mean to, be, to, to, to give up a path that you want to be on, that you're committed to, a path that whatever gives you some, some sense of like enjoyment or fulfillment or whatever, and you know it's wrong, and you know it's not really giving you enjoyment and fulfillment, it's leading you astray, but you, you know you should repent. What do you do when you're in that, in that where it's not in here to repent? 
Well, if you're an American, one thing you can do is you can say, America is kind of a romantic, we're kind of committed to romanticism. You, you could say, well, I, I just can't repent then. I can't do it. It wouldn't be authentic because I don't really mean it. I don't really feel like it. I don't feel it down here, so I just can't do it. And what the Bible would say is, it's not the point. You should repent of that too. It's okay to repent of not being able to repent. It's okay to say to God, I can't repent, God, would you give me repentance? It's okay to say to him, I don't feel like repenting, and I'm sorry for that too. Would you give me repentance for not feeling, right, for, for not feeling like repenting, and then give me the repentance of the thing I need to repent from? What you're doing when you do that is you're not giving in. Hopefully, you're not, this is not an excuse. But please don't. This is not what's happening in the Bible is that it means, well, I don't have to repent until God magically makes me do it. That would be like saying, if it's God's will that I go to work in the morning, he'll like, stand me up out of bed and force me to put on my clothes and eat my Rice Krispies and get in the car. No, you just do it. And when you do it, it's God who's actually doing it through you and for you. Repent, but no, 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 that it is God who is doing this. And you have to ask him, restore me, O God, or like the Hebrew actually says, cause me to repent, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That's the first thing, to know that repentance is a gift of God and to ask him for it, even when you don't feel like it or you don't want to do it intellectually, to ask him for it. The second part is this, and it's related to it. Repentance happens. We turn back towards God when we come to live in the radical realization that he has turned back towards us. Now, I told you that the, that the Hebrew word, like the Greek word for repentance is just simply the verb for turn. But check out verse, seven, uh, verse 14. I know that doesn't help you very much. It starts, turn again, O God of hosts. It's kind of two-thirds of the way down. Turn again. That's actually when it says, turn again, O God of hosts. That's the exact same verb for repentance. Did you see what the psalmist is saying? God, I need you to repent and turn back to me. Not repent in the sense that God is sinful and needs to change his way, but God, I need you to abandon the path of abandonment. I need you to turn away from turning away from me. I need you to forsake forsaking me, and I need you to turn back and come towards me. Why? That's the second piece. is because we can't repent unless God comes back to us first. We can't turn to him unless he turns to us first. Now, the good news is, and this is gonna be the last point, is he's done that. He's done that. He's given us repentance. He's made it available. He has turned his face back towards us. How does he do this in Psalm 80? The psalmist talks about it in two ways. So I was thinking about this, uh, this, this week as I was preparing for this. Like, How did the original readers or worshipers who were praying this, how did they understand these two phrases? I don't know. But on this side of Jesus of Nazareth, we can get it much more easily. And it goes like this. God does this through the saving action of the Son of Man. There's this character who shows up here at the back end of Psalm 80 who's talked talk about in two different ways. The first way is this. Look in verse 15. Uh, this is right after the turn again verse. Have regard for the vine, the stock that your right hand has planted, and for the Son whom you made strong for yourself. Okay, so here's the vineyard. That's Israel. Here's the vine keeper. That's God. And then all of a sudden, here's this third character, the son that God has made strong for himself. Now, who is this? Well, those of you who are Christians, you already know where this is going, right? This is the son. This is the God's son. This is the capital S son. In fact, Jesus tells a story about a vineyard that involves the son. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells this parable. He says, here another parable. There's a master of a house who planted a vineyard 
and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is just taking the story from Psalm 80 and from Isaiah 5 and Ezekiel 15 and saying, you all know what this story is. This is the story of Israel. When, when Jesus starts talking about vineyards, it's not just some random agricultural imagery. He's tapping into their own identity. This is their story. And he says, let me tell you the story. And as soon as he, start, as soon as he starts telling it, you know what they're hearing. They're hearing Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5, and they're like, okay, this is about us, and this is about how we failed. And Jesus says this, when the season for fruit drew near, God sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And they almost certainly would have heard God has sent prophets. He sent Jeremiah, and he sent Ezekiel, and he sent Hosea and Amos to his people to check up on this fruit that we're supposed to be bearing. But our bad leaders way back then, those bad guys, you know, the, 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 the Jews who threw Jeremiah in the pit, they mistreated the prophets, and they were bad guys. But that's not like us. Uh, the, uh, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to him. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took the son and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And I'm not going to keep on reading here, but it takes a few more comments before they realize that Jesus is not talking about the dudes who threw Jeremiah into a pit. He's talking about them. They are the ones who are preparing to kill his son. You know that story, but go back to Psalm 80, and let's plug that into Psalm 80. When, when, when uh, the psalmist says, let your, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself, it's, a, it's basically saying the vineyard will get rebuilt when this, 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 the son of God's right hand comes and rebuilds it and takes over. But when you fast forward to the story of the Gospels, how does the son do this? He does it by being killed. He does it by being killed by the people who were supposed to be bearing good fruit, but who didn't. But by his death and by his resurrection, he restores the vineyard. He makes the vineyard grow big and strong so that it covers not just uh, the, 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 the cedars of Lebanon or the mountains of Syria. It doesn't just spread from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates. Now it's spreading all over the whole world. In Glen Carbon tonight and in places all over the world, God's people, his vineyard, have grown and spread out over the whole world. This is what the Son of Man has done by his death and resurrection. So that's the, the only way for the vineyard to be repaired is that God decided to repair it to take his son, to send his son to take over and make it new. But here's the next piece. Jesus isn't just the owner of the vineyard. He's not just the vintner. He's not just the master of the vineyard. In a weird twist, he is also the vineyard itself. Now, we were, this is the gospel we read just a few minutes ago from John chapter 15. It's not that here's us, the vineyard, that God is building up, and here is Jesus, who is the boss of the vineyard. Jesus insists in John chapter 15, he says this. Oh, let me, I should read it to you out of the bulletin. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus is pulling on this Isaiah 5, Psalm 80 story as well. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Who is Jesus in the story? Is he the son that the vine owner sends to collect the fruit? Yes. But he's also the vineyard too. Whose side is Jesus on? Is he on his father's side or is he on our side? Is he the vine dresser or is he the vine? And the answer in this, that Jesus is telling in the story of Scripture is that he's both. He's both man and God. He's both vine and vintner. And we can only be what God created us to be, fruit bearers, if we're in him. Jesus is the whole vine. The church is called the body of Christ. This is our fundamental identity. This is super important. We are not fundamentally a group of people that get together to worship Jesus at a distance. We are the body of Christ. There is a sense in which Jesus is here. This is Jesus. Jesus is the vine. And you and I can bear fruit to the extent that we are parts of that. This is what God has called us to do. This is what he's created us for. This is what he's doing in and through us. In this Advent season, as we think about the, our, our brothers and sisters in the past, now uh, 2,600 years ago in, in Isaiah's case, and we think about them, and we think about what they were looking forward to, we can be grateful for the fact that God has made himself real in Christ. He has come down here and bound himself to us. In the weird metaphor, he wasn't just content to say, here's the vine, grow fruit. He actually decided to become the vine himself so that we could bear fruit through him. And we can look forward to and be grateful for the way he's doing that and planning on doing that in our lives too. All right, let's stand and pray. God, thank you for calling us and for making us your vine. Thank you for creating us to bear much fruit for yourself. We know that we can't repent and trust in you without you doing the work in and through us. And so we pray that you would give us the gift of faith, give us the gift of repentance, and we'll give you praise and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can